are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Today's scripture is found in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus eyed his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment, and your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word. Well, it's good to, to be with you tonight to God's word. An encouraging time for you. Dive into the gospel. Uh, but before we do that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. So, would you pray with me? God, we come before you this evening and just acknowledge the fact that there's so much going on in our world right now. So many things going on in our own lives right now distractions and other things that we're having to think about and, and work on and do. And so I just pray that as we spend this time together now, I pray that you'd focus our minds and our hearts. Not on all those other things that might be going on right now. Very real struggles, very real things that weigh us down. But God, would you focus our minds and our hearts on what you want to say to us through your word tonight. God, I pray that you'd encourage us. I pray that you'd refresh our souls. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that work. That you would apply God's word to our life. That as we leave from here, that we would be transformed and changed for your glory and our good. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd move in power even now. As we open up your living and active word, may Christ be exalted now. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know, I love the, uh, the vastness of our world. We live in a pretty amazing world. And if we look around, I mean, there's so many amazing things in nature and all over the place that we can look at and see. But for a lot of us, we don't have the opportunity to go travel to all those places. That's why I like shows like Planet Earth, where sometimes we get a little glimpse into some of the amazing realities of the world we find ourselves in. But one of the things I love most about shows like Planet Earth is when they do the super slow motion camera. 
You know what I'm talking about? They take something that in real time happens so fast and so quick that we kind of miss the significance of what's happening, and they slow it down so much that you can actually see some of these amazing things, like a great white shark breaching the surface of the water to snag a seal. Or one of the crazy things I've enjoyed watching is seeing a hummingbird hovering over its food, getting ready to eat. They slow down so much, and you can see the elegance of the flapping of its wings and tail feathers that otherwise look just like a blur. When we slow something down that actually happens quickly to a more viewable speed, we're able to actually see the beauty of what it is, see the nuances of the details that leave us in a place to say, wow. We know a little over a year ago, we started a sermon series called Seeing Jesus. It's been a year since we've been in the Gospel of John, and we've taken some breaks along the way. We just did our uh, Kingdom Citizen sermon series. But we're diving back in that to, into that uh, story today, and one of the goals in this whole sermon series has been to answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? I mean, that's the most important question that any of us can ask for our own lives, that any of us can answer for our own lives. Who do you say Jesus is? Because if we understand who Jesus is, if we see Jesus rightly, it's in seeing him rightly that we'll be able to follow him fully. And so as we dive back into this series today, we're going to be in John chapter 13, as you've just heard read. And we'll see beginning today, throughout the rest of our time in the Gospel of John, that things really slow down. So far, we've spent 12 chapters in the Gospel of John, and those 12 chapters happened over the course of roughly three years. The last nine chapters in the Gospel of John happened in about a week. So John slows things down, really slows things down. But just like a super slow motion video reveals wonderful details and nuances to things and leaves us in awe, this last section in the Gospel of John will enable us also to see wonderful details about who Jesus is, about what he's come to do, that will leave us in awe. Our text today begins with this banner-like thesis statement that John makes that really sets the tone and the tenor of the rest of the Gospel of John, the rest of this narrative. It's this banner statement that as we dive into it and look at it today, I hope will leave you encouraged as you walk away from here this evening. I hope it will refresh your soul as you go about your week this week. And I hope it does that for you no matter if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or maybe you're here tonight just checking out who Jesus is. Came with some friends or are curious about who Christ really, really is. So with that, let's dive into John chapter 13 and may all of us seek to see Jesus more clearly today. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, we've had lots of opportunities to see Jesus. We've seen Jesus perform many signs and miracles so far throughout this gospel narrative. We've seen Jesus interact with individuals like the woman at the well or Nicodemus when he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night to ask him a question. We've seen Jesus engage the masses and teach them as he taught them in front of the, the crowd of 5,000 whom he later fed. We've seen him do amazing things and even in the midst of that challenge the religious elite and show them who he really is and what he came to do. As Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. But as we come to our text today, we see that Jesus engages not a crowd of curious people. Jesus engages a circle of close friends and faithful followers. This is the beginning of what's often called the farewell discourse. 
Jesus' final words and Jesus' final actions before he will go and have his hands and his feet nailed to a Roman cross. Because verse 1 says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The feast of the Passover is coming. A time when God's people would gather to remember and celebrate the fact that God had freed his people from slavery after hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. And so God's people for hundreds of years after that are coming together and they're celebrating God's deliverance that we see take place in the book of so Jesus is gathered with his 12 disciples, these followers of Jesus. They're gathered in Jerusalem for this feast and the celebration. But it's within this introductory sentence that John lays out for us in verse 1 that he gives us this banner-like thesis statement. And in it, we see something amazing about Jesus. What we see about Jesus is his heart towards his own people. What we see about Jesus is his posture towards his own. And that includes you. If your faith is in him. And it can be easy, like it often is, as we read the Bible, just to kind of breeze past things, to see details and not really focus in on the purpose of them. But I don't want us to do that today. I want us to slow down and take a look at what John says here. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's break that down a little bit. It says he loved, he says Jesus had loved his own who were in the world. Most specifically, he's talking about his group of disciples, these followers of his, this called out community. This group of people who were in the world, but not of the world, who once were not a people, but had become God's people. This group of followers who had left their old life and placed their hope in Jesus, in this king, in his kingdom. He loved them as he did life with them. Jesus didn't just show up for a speaking gig and then kind of go back to the green room and not hang out with people. Now, Jesus spent time with his followers. He ate with them and he lived life with them and he traveled with them and he talked with them and he taught them. He loved them along the way of life. But his love for these followers didn't stop there. No, John says he loved them to the end. And this is that header statement that I don't want us to breeze past and miss what, what John's trying to communicate here about Jesus. But everything else that's going to happen that kind of flows out of this. And it isn't just for this ragtag group of disciples. He isn't just saying he loved them, this 12 people to the end. This includes you and me if our faith is in him. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus loved them to the end? Well, loving them to the end has two elements to it. It's love to the end in the sense of his earthly life and ministry. But it also has the sense of a love to the uttermost. This kind of love is a love that has no boundaries, a love that has no barriers, no limitations, no restrictions to it. Nothing can hold back this kind of love or pin it up or trap it in. When Jesus loved to the end, it's a display of the full extent of his love for his people, the disciples in this room and every single person who's in Christ. But this love it isn't, a, it isn't a distant kind of love. It isn't a love that's in words only. Right, we, we can do that a lot. We can use words and just say, well, I love this and I love that and, and I love you. And we kind of just throw it around, but it's just words. Now, this is love that's backed up by action. 
which is what real love really looks like. It communicates through doing something, through action. It's a love that involves service and sacrifice. And what happens next in this story that John's laying out for us is an illustration, an example of this kind of love, a love that goes to the end. Look at verses two and three. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So let's pause real quick here. Satan has put this idea or worked in some way in the sinfulness of Judas to put this idea of, of betraying Jesus to the religious authorities. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. We're not going to spend as much time on it this week. But he's setting the scene for what's about to happen. And we'll see here that Jesus, it says he knows what lies ahead. Jesus is the son of God. He has exhaustive knowledge. He knows what's about to happen. He knows why he's here and why he's come to be on this earth and what's about to transpire. And it's because of that that he does what he does next. Look at verses 4 and 5. After he says this, he knows what's about to happen. It says, verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this is a little bit strange for us. At least it should be strange for us. This isn't something we regularly do in our own life and culture. I mean, if you came over to someone's house in our community on a day like today, it's rainy outside. What's the thing you're going to probably do? You're going to come in the door. You might wipe your feet off, your shoes off on the doormat. Maybe you'll take your shoes off and leave them by the front door. But it's not likely that in anybody's home within this church that after you do that, they're going to be like, hey, go take a seat over here, take your socks off, wash your feet off for you. We think that'd be kind of strange. But in Jesus's day, this was common. This is a common practice. In Jesus's day, there's no paved roads anywhere. There's lots of dusty and dirty paths and streets that down over and over again. Sometimes they had no shoes on, or if they did, it was just sandals. So they're dirty and gross. They come into a house and be customary for the host to provide some kind of basin of water for people to clean their feet off. And in a situation like this, if the host had some money and resources, the people didn't have to wash their own feet off. They would have a, a servant or slave there to wash the feet off of the guests. About that. And then Jesus and he takes off his outer garments. It'd be like he had a button-up shirt on at this dinner, and he starts taking his, his button-up shirt off, and he has an undershirt on underneath, and he's like rolling up his sleeves. He's putting this towel around his waist, and then he pours the water in the basin. Everybody's looking at him like, is he doing what I think he's doing? What's going on here? This water, and then he goes to each and starts washing their feet off. I mean, this would have been shocking them and surprising, unheard of for someone like Jesus to do this. It's so upside down from the way they expected it to be. This was the job of a servant. And Jesus is the teacher. He's the leader of this group of people. If anybody's feet should be the ones being washed, it would be Jesus's feet, not this group of disciples. So they're shocked about this. But here he is taking on the form of a lowly servant. We see the astonishment in Peter's reaction. Peter often speaking up, sometimes speaking before he thinks. 
In verse 6, in verse 8, it says this, he came to Simon Peter, so he's going around the room, and he's washing their feet off, and Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And then look at verse 8. He says, you shall never wash my feet. Peter doesn't ask questions. He's not even wondering that Jesus might be up to something. He's just like, no, 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 no. This is not right. We're not doing this. Jesus gives a short response that really cuts to the heart of the matter. Look at the second half of verse 8. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. To which Peter replies, as he often does, in kind of a hyperbolic way, a kind of a bombastic way. Okay, well, if that's the case, I don't want to miss out. Like, wash all of me. Like, let's just do the whole bath thing right now. He's like, I don't want to miss out. I'm missing something here, but I don't want to miss this. So clean me up, Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. What's going on here? What's the purpose of what Jesus trying to do? He's always intentional. He's always purposeful for what he's doing. So what's he intending to do here? Is this just about clean feet? Is this just an example of servant leadership? Well, it is about clean feet. They have nasty, dirty feet. They need to be clean. And it is a picture of servant leadership, as we'll see at the end of these few verses here, that Jesus is modeling that leaders don't come to, to be served by everyone around them as if they're in a high and lifted up place to just receive honor. No, he says leaders, they serve. So we need to learn that for our own lives as well, but it's way more than that. Look back at verse 7. Verse 7 is a key verse to this whole story. In verse 7, it says, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. What I'm doing you won't understand now, but afterward you will See, Jesus is telling Peter, he's telling the rest of the disciples, there's more going on here than just clean feet. There's more going on here than me even just serving you. There's something more important, something bigger, something that you're not going to fully understand now. When it says they'll understand this later, it doesn't mean like after he's washing their feet. He's talking about something that's going to happen in the future, something more important. And we see that all the more says to Peter in verse 8, Peter, you need to be washed. You need to be cleaned, Peter, not just by anyone, but by me, by me back to the Old Testament theme that rises up in the Old Testament. And that's this idea, this theme of being clean and cleansed and washed, not just from dirt, but from sin, from our rebellion against God, the thing that stains us and separates us from God. One example of this is in Psalm 51. It's a psalm of repentance where David is crying out to God in prayer, repenting for his sin and repenting for his disobedience. And he says this in verses 2 and in verse 7, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. See, what Jesus is saying here, what he's talking about here is not just stinky, nasty, dirty feet. That's not his focus. He's not just thinking about the removal of dirt. No, what Jesus is putting on display here, the picture that he's showing here, is the removal of the stain of sin. It's the removal of the disease of disobedience. It's the removal of the rancid rot of rebellion, of what separates us from God. Now, if you... We've been following Jesus for a long time. It's a good reminder to think about what sin is. And maybe you don't yet know Christ. I'm glad you're here today. Maybe you've heard this word sin before, but don't really understand what we're talking about. 
what sin is, is it's our turning away from God. And it infects every aspect and effects every aspect of who we are, every inch of who we are. Your mind is affected by it. Your heart, your soul is affected by it. It separates you from God as you willfully and wantingly disobey God and turn away from him and seek to go your own way and do your own thing. But here's the deal. You can't fix that on your own. You, you can't remove that on your own. You can't root out that sin that's within you on your own by your own personal willpower. It doesn't matter how many books you read. It doesn't matter how smart you are. The removal of sin for your, from your life is not a DIY project. My neighbor was just sharing with me yesterday about the time when she had raccoons in her house. They had made their way off of a tree limb into the top part of her house and they had camped out in her attic and had babies while they were up there. Raccoons, man, they're crazy. They know how to unscrew screws, so they'll unscrew fans that are attached to ceilings. So she's like, I gotta get these raccoons out of my house. What am I gonna do? And so she's trying to figure out a way to get these raccoons out of her house and she can't do it. So she calls one person up to come get them out and they can't figure out how to lure these raccoons out so they don't stay in there. And so finally she finds an expert to do it, to figure out how to actually get these raccoons out of the house and not back into it again. The same thing is true for our sin. You can't be cleansed and have sin removed from your life unless it's done by a qualified and capable person. Someone who actually is able to bring this level of restoration to your life, to remove the effects of sin in your life. And guess what? Jesus is the only one who's capable. Jesus is the only one who's qualified to do that. But does Jesus mean that in this act of actually washing the disciples' feet right now, that he's bringing that level of cleansing work to their life? No. As one scholar puts it, the foot washing is an acted parable performed in the presence of the disciples, both, where that both explains the cross and is explained by the cross. In other words, Jesus is headed to the cross. We saw that in verse 1. He knows what's about to happen. He knows he's going back to the Father. He's going to go to the cross to take on the sin of the world. And so before he goes and does that, he's showing the disciples something here. In this foot washing, he's showing them a picture, a symbol of what's to come. That it will be in and through him going to the cross that sin will be fully and finally washed away. And Jesus is pointing to what is ahead. Now I think this begs the question, at least it did for me this week, is couldn't the disciples understand the purpose of the cross? Can't we understand the purpose of the cross of Christ apart from washing of feet? Why does Jesus do this? Why does John take time? to talk about this in this narrative. The reason is because it shows us the nature of Jesus' love. It shows us the nature of his love. This isn't a love that's distant. It's not a love that's haughty. It's kind of like, uh, pretentious. It's not an ethereal kind of love. It's not a theoretical kind of love. No, Jesus' love is a love that's real, that's actual, actual, that's personal, that's tangible, that's tactile. It's a love that's humble. It, it, it shows us that it's a love that serves. It's a love that's sacrificial. It's a love to the end. Washing feet is the lowliest of low positions. It's the lowliest of low positions. But the cross is even more so. Both are meant to cleanse. One physically and temporally, one spiritually 
and forever. The disciples don't understand this in this moment, but Jesus says, you will understand what I'm doing later. So this act, this act of serving and sacrificial love is an illustration of what's to come. It's a physical picture of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But listen to this. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a physical picture of Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why is this love such a big deal? Why is he spending all this time showing them this way and doing it this way? Why is he trying to paint this picture for them? It's because of what happens on the cross. Think about this. Again, of Jesus for a long time and, and the cross you're like yeah I know Jesus went to the cross and he died for me and he took on my sin and I'm, I'm thankful for that I lift my hands during worship because of that I praise God because of that maybe for some of you again you don't exactly know the purpose of the cross or what happened in that time but think about this the the atrocity of the cross I mean Jesus's hands and feet are nailed to a wooden beam I mean how painful physically that would be to have a spike driven through part of your body to hang there upright on the cross. And if that wasn't enough, he's humiliated. He's stripped down naked, hanging there on a cross in front of a crowd of watching people who aren't just watching him but are mocking him and ridiculing him and spitting on him and hurling insults at him. And if that isn't enough, it's not just those physical pain and that physical humiliation that's taking place there. On the cross when Jesus died, what's happening is, is the funneling of the cumulative judgment of the sin of all of God's people poured out on him in that moment. He's crushed under the weight of your sin and my sin. Every single thing we've ever done in disobedience to God is poured out on Christ in that moment. The full weight of the judgment that you deserve and I deserve for my rebellion against God, Jesus bears out on that cross. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he do that for, for us? We see later in scripture it says he did it for the joy that was set before him. What's the joy that's set before him? It's you. It's the fact that he is going to restore you to a right relationship with God, that he's going to rescue you and call you brother and sister and bring you into the family of God, and that together he'll go sit back at the right hand of the Father and bring us all together to be this new family redeemed and restored to a holy God. Why would Jesus die for sinners like you and me? Because he loves you to the end. Because he loves you to the end. See, when John says that Jesus loves to the end, he's pulling back the veil and showing us the core of who Jesus is and what motivates him to do what he came to do. And man, I want us to get this. I want you to get this. I want you to go home this week and spend time looking at even just verse 1 of chapter 13 or looking through this story and just reflecting on and resting in the, and being overwhelmed by the lavish love of Jesus. I want you to see Jesus and experience Jesus. I want you to do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, that you would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That you would know something that isn't really able to be fully known. 
should take time to meditate on and think about this. Why? Because you and I find ourselves in a world right now full of uncertainty. We find ourselves in a world right now that in the midst of uncertainty is offering you false promises of hope, peace, telling you if you want to be loved, find it over here. If you really want to be loved, then you need to look like this or act like this or believe these things or vote for this person or do these certain kinds of things or have these kind of relationships. If you want to receive love, then you need to do that. But what we see here, what we're reminded of here is the love of Christ surpasses all of that. Jesus' love for you provides the security that you long for and the stability that you long for and the rest that you long for and the hope and the peace because it's not a love that's fickle. It's not a love that comes and goes. It's a love that goes all the way to the end, sure and steady. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't meet you halfway. He didn't say, I'll, I'll do part of this if you come the rest of the way and you do some stuff on your own. Romans 5.8 tells us that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebelling against God, that Jesus went to the cross for you knowing everything about you. He's not surprised at your sin. There's nothing you've thought or done in the past, in the present, or in the future that he's going to be going like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. He knows you at your worst, and he went to the cross for you out of love. What this means is that Jesus' love for you, hear me on this, isn't dependent on your lovableness. It isn't dependent on your lovableness. It isn't dependent even on your faithfulness. I mean, look at the disciples. They fall asleep. They abandon Jesus. They deny him. They miss the whole point of all of this, and it didn't stop Jesus. He didn't throw up his hands in disgust or disappointment and say, you know what? I was going to do this for you, but now I'm not. No, he continued all the way to the cross, to the point of death. I'm so thankful Jesus doesn't love like us. He doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't keep something for himself. There's no inch or ounce of selfishness or, or self-serving in his love. We see that on display as he does one of the lowliest tasks he could possibly do to show them the ultimate lowly task that he would do for his disciples. There's no demanding of quid pro quo in Jesus' love for you, where he says, I'll love you a little if you love me a little. Let's have this kind of game back and forth. He doesn't love like we do. As one pastor puts it, we love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. When everyone else, including the disciples in this room, getting their feet washed by Jesus, abandon him and leave him alone at the cross, Jesus stayed. He stayed there. This is love to the end. It's a other world kind of love. It's a final and complete love. It's not conditional, where you have to bring something. It's, it's exhaustive. It's total. It's persevering love. It's unfading and unfaltering. It's unending. A love that never runs dry. A love that's never, ever exhausted. It's a love to the end. But this is where we can struggle sometimes. We can think, sure, Jesus generally loves people. He generally loves people. He has to. But does he really consistently love me? I get that he has this kind of general love, but does he, does he consistently love and specifically love me? 
I can struggle with this in my own life, my own relationship with God. But I don't want us to miss something in this picture, this parable that's acted out before the disciples that we get to read about today. Jesus' love here isn't indiscriminate love. I mean, you guys have probably been to a concert or an event, right, where maybe a baseball game or a basketball game or something, and you got people coming out, they're throwing t-shirts into the crowd, throwing candy out to everybody, some kind of other swag or something they're throwing out to the crowd. That's indiscriminate, right? They're, they're looking at a group of people and they're saying, I'm throwing this out. Whoever gets it, gets it. I don't know what's going to happen. It's indiscriminately thrown out. That's not the kind of love Jesus has. It's not indiscriminate love. No, he has specific love. He goes to every single person, every disciple, and washes their feet individually, touches them individually, looks at them individually. If this is a picture of what's to come, that means the cross is specific as well. It's specific to your sin. Jesus went to the cross and died for you, knowing everything you would do. You, singular, not plural. He knew your name. It was in his mind and on his heart when he went and his hands and feet were nailed to the cross. It's specific to you. That means Jesus' love is specific to you as a person. It means when Jesus loves you to the end, it isn't a general kind of love where he's just putting up with you. No, it's a personal love. It doesn't just secure your future. It secures your present as well. Hear me on this. If you are in Christ, you cannot be unloved by him. You can't be unloved by him. He loves you in the midst of your mess, and he knows all of it. He loves you in the midst of your struggle with sin, and all of us struggle with sin. He loves you in your moments of fear and doubt, and all of us have fears and doubt. He loves you forever and ever. Now, this doesn't mean that we're flippant about our sin. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter to God. Now, when we recognize the holiness of God and we disobey and we struggle with sin, we should come before him in repentance and re-hate our sin. But the fact of the matter is we can still come before him. We can come back to Jesus again to be cleansed and forgiven, not because you lost your salvation, because he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. But in the midst of that, I don't want you to believe the lie. It's often whispered into our ears and in our hearts that as we sin, as we struggle, as we have fear, as we have doubts, that somehow Jesus' heart towards you has grown cold and despondent. That he's disappointed with you. That he's had enough of you. And Jesus' love isn't like that. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. He loves you to the end. So let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that on a day-to-day -day basis in your own life? Or do you sometimes act like Peter, where you reject the cleansing, serving, sacrificial love of Jesus for you? Maybe you do that because you think you can manage on your own, that you can clean yourself up on your own with self-made religion and self-made rules, or, well, I, I need to fix this part of my life first before I go back to Jesus because I've done this so many times, I've messed up so many times. Maybe you think you don't really need to be cleansed, that you're kind of good with where you're at right now. Or maybe you think that he won't actually receive you when you do come, that he won't restore you, that your sin is too gross for him to love you in that way. Listen, as Tim Keller, a pastor and author, says, the good news of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for you is this. 
You are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. Like we're worse than we think we are. Then he says this, yet at the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. Do you need the love of Jesus today? Maybe for the first time, maybe you've never come to God and asked him to save you, asked him to forgive you, thrown yourself wholly on him, trusting in Jesus. If that's where you're at, receive the love of Jesus has for you today. There's nothing you have done, will do, that can separate you from him if you come to him. For a lot of us, we need the love of Jesus for maybe the hundredth time, the thousandth time in our life. I know I do. I don't always believe his heart is for me. I don't always believe his heart is toward me. I can sometimes have a thought in the back of my mind, well, Jesus is just putting up with me. I mean, he has to. It's like part of the rules or something. That's not Jesus' heart towards you, and it's not his heart towards me. And so it's in those moments that I need to be reminded by his word and by his people, by you guys, I need to be reminded of who Jesus is. I need to be reminded of who I am in light of that. My guess is that you need that reminder as well. So what might it look like to rest in the love Jesus has for you? What might it look like to rest in this love that goes to the end? I think it can help us to refocus our our pursuits and our hopes and our dreams. It can help us not to be anxious or worried or fearful in the midst of all that's going on around us because I can look to the cross and see that Jesus stayed, that he is sure and steady, that he has everything under control, that this God who created everything, he's for me, not against me, even if I don't understand everything he's doing right now. It can help me to find love in Christ and not go looking for it in all the wrong places. I need to be regularly, daily reminded that any kind of love that the world offers to me will pale in comparison to the love I have in Christ that's illustrated in the washing of the feet and put on display in the sacrifice of the cross. Jesus alone washes away all my sin. He washes away all my sin, all of it. Jesus alone makes me whole. In Jesus it is finished. So brothers and sisters, whenever you find yourself on a Tuesday afternoon, on a Friday night, on a Saturday morning when you can't seem to get yourself up out of bed and you're questioning if God loves you, questioning if Jesus really loves you, and you're tempted to go find that love somewhere else, look again to the cross. Look again to the cross. The cross is central to the life of the believer, and love is central to the cross. What it means to love you to the end, that's what it means. Jesus stayed for you. And the crazy thing is, when we grasp this even a little bit, it not only affects our relationship with God, but our lives with one another. That's what verses 12 through 17 are about. And I'm not going to explain all that right now because we're going to spend more time talking about it next week. But let me just read them to us again. It says, when he had finished, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Listen, this means that you can't serve Jesus until you've been served by Jesus. You can't love like Jesus until you receive 
the love of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And now we can go and do likewise, loving, serving, sacrificing, because Jesus loves us to the end. This is so important for us as a community. It's so important for us as followers of Jesus in our world right now that we're going to come back to it next week and talk more about it because Jesus talks more about it. Listen, the world is moving at a breakneck speed. There's things happening so fast. It's flashy. It's constantly changing. We are daily inundated with more and more information. And the culture around us is preaching a message to find love and find hope in all of these other things. But when you slow down and see Jesus for who he really is, he truly is, you can see this banner that waves over your life if you are in Christ. Jesus loves you in the midst of your messiness. He loves you in those mundane moments of life. And he will love you to the end. Brothers and sisters, rest in that reality this week and go and encourage one another to do the same thing. We're going to come forward and take communion now. And this is a meal that reminds us of the love Jesus has for us. We eat the bread as a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. And we drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. And Jesus tells us, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And so we want to do this regularly. We try to do this every week as a church because we need to be reminded of it every week. We go out and we forget it. It's one of the reasons we have to gather together. To hear, be reminded of the good news of Christ, the serving, sacrificial love of Jesus towards us. That he sees us at our worst and loves us still. And so as you eat and drink today, may your heart be encouraged and your soul refreshed in your Savior's love. If you don't yet know Christ, so thankful that you're here today. I hope that you'll think on and pray about and consider what's been said today, and sung today, and read today, and prayed today. But we just ask you not to take communion. Because this doesn't do anything for you. This is a testimony to the fact that our only hope is in Jesus. So if that's not true for you yet, I just want to encourage you, instead of eating the bread and drinking the cup, take Christ today. Take and receive the love that he wants to pour out on you. And if you have a question about what it means to know him and follow him, come talk to me afterwards or whoever you maybe came with today. For those of you that will to take it, if you don't already have the elements, there's some in the table in the back here. You can go grab them. And I'm just going to invite you to take it whenever you would like to. The band's going to come back up after I pray. So just take time to reflect. Take time to rejoice. Take time to give thanks for Christ's love for you. And then eat the bread and drink the cup. Be refreshed in the depth of your soul for Jesus' love for you. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word, your living and active word. Jesus, I pray that you would make this truth sink into the deep parts of our heart, those deep crevices in our heart that we need the love of Christ to affect us. Father, would you help us to know the love of Jesus, this love that surpasses knowledge. Holy Spirit, help us to rest in it and go and tell the world about it. We thank you for the grace we have in Christ. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.